You're listening to the Converging Paths podcast, brought to you by Asia House and the Barakat Trust, with the support of the Altagir Trust and the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. Hello and good day to everyone. This is Juan de Lara, Cultural Manager at Asia House, and as part of our third edition of Converging Paths, I'm very pleased to present the first of our podcasts, part of the Young Perspective series, a digital space that gives voice to young scholars, academics, and researchers to communicate and share their interests with a wider community. Today, I have here with me Maisa Kafil Hussein, who is an archive, library, and collections manager, focusing on modern Arab art, with a special interest in Iraqi art history. She's also a freelance art researcher and writer, and is working with a range of international art organizations, publications, and artists. What's wonderful about this is that Maisa will be able to share her knowledge about Iraq and its culture with us, in which I think is the first ever episode devoted to this nation. So welcome, Maisa. It's a pleasure having you here with us today. And I think my first question really to you is, what is Iraqi visual culture? What a question, Juan. And one that is very difficult to answer because, I mean, where do we even begin? I mean, if we want to go back very, very far, of course, we have what was ancient Iraq, Mesopotamia. And within that, we have, you know, Sumerian culture, for example. And Sumeria had really key cities like Ur and Uruk. And these were really fascinating, buzzing places, the birthplace of written language. And there were gods and kings and various forms of government and society. So their art and their architecture reflected that in temples, other religious buildings, palaces, cylinder seals, statues of deities and various other individuals. And what we would now consider like really typical Sumerian artistic features. Um, and then there's the Akkadian period, the Assyrian period. And then we move on to more Persian influences, the Sassanids from the third to the seventh century, uh, which had a lot of jewelry, metalwork, wall reliefs. And then the Abbasids came in and that was a really key period. Uh, specifically in Iraq because of, you know, there were very local forms of pottery, calligraphy, architecture, and especially really important illuminated manuscripts were being produced at that time, including Khalilu Dimna, and of course the Maqamat al-Hariri, which was illustrated by Yahya al-Wasiti. Um, that was, you know, the golden age, the period of the Baghdad school, this huge translation movement, and a place full of thinkers, writers, scientists, artisans. It was a cultural hub. And then the Mongols sacked Baghdad in 1258, and it kind of made, I suppose, what you would consider Iraqi art pause to an extent. Other dynasties came in, the Jalairids, the Safavids, and then, of course, the Ottomans, who ruled Iraq until the early 20th century. And art and architecture was, of course, still being produced, but there are a lot of blurry periods within that time because so much of what was being produced was heavily influenced by every dynasty and every ruler and the the indigeneity was kind of lost aside from regional folk arts and crafts. So it was then from the early 20th century you start to get easel painting and traditional fine arts which slowly materialized into an Iraqi modern art movement from the 40s onwards. And of course that includes so much, really experimental and abstract drawing, painting, sculpture, large monuments, um, modernist architecture. There was very much an artistic and cultural revival 
led by artists and artist groups, such as Fayek Hassan, who led the Pioneers group, Hafid Adrubi, who led the Impressionist group, and especially Shakir Hassan Al-Said and Jawad Salim, who led the Baghdad group for modern art, and so many more after this as well. And within their work, we see like certain motifs, certain styles, which are now commonly associated with this idea of Iraqi visual culture. Thank you, Maisa. It's fascinating to learn about this such long history of the country. And I wonder, you have talked about this uh, group called the Baghdad Group of Modern Art led by Jawad Salim. How integrated were these artists within the cultural scene of the 50s and the 60s in Iraq? Yeah, sure. So Jawad Salim um, formed an artistic collective in 1951 called the Baghdad Group for Modern Art alongside fellow artist Shakir Hassan Al-Said. This was a really, really big moment in Iraqi art. They were young, up-and-coming artists. They were the first group there to launch a bold manifesto as part of their practice. And in this manifesto, they speak really passionately about this notion of istilham al-turath, which is loosely translated from the Arabic to seeking inspiration from tradition or from heritage. And what they essentially wanted to do was combine aspects of Iraqi artistic heritage, which to so many had been completely lost or overlooked. And they wanted to combine that with modern art to create a local style or a local artistic language. That heritage with they, which they wanted to incorporate, was it was vast, it was huge. You know, you get the influence of local folk art and motifs, Sumerian sculpture, Islamic art and manuscripts, especially Al-Wasti's illustrations, um, which Salim had come across images of a few years earlier. And they had a huge impact on him. It was a part of Iraqi history which had been lost with the original manuscript somehow ending up in Paris. So it wasn't accessible to Iraqis in the mid 20th century. It was something that a lot of people didn't even know about locally. And it was one of the many parts of their cultural history that they wanted to reclaim. And the other artists that formed this group included Shakir Hassan, who I previously mentioned, um, Lorna Salim, who was Jawad's wife, who he had met while studying in London. So many others who joined or participated throughout the years. They were all really integrated into the cultural scene at that time. They joined various other groups. They were really active. They were exhibiting. They were doing collective exhibitions um, all the time. They supported each other, worked together. They exhibited in other countries, not as a group necessarily, but Iraqi artists of this period in general were exhibiting together um, elsewhere. And this generation of artists were very important as they kind of crossed that bridge of old and new and made modernism in the artistic sense very visible and very much established in Iraq. And perhaps bearing in mind that our audience is not able to visualize right now the paintings and the artworks of this generation, how would you describe them? How did they look like? Look like, I mean, every artist is very different. Um, you know, you get, their art becomes very, um, Jawad, for example, he starts to do a lot of work and his wife Lorna actually, they started intentionally painting the, the rural communities of Iraq um, and using, you know, a lot of earthy tones, um, a lot of linear figures. Um, they started using crescent symbols and things like that. The way they, the way they positioned their figures on their, on their artworks, and a lot of the other painters do this too, um, they, it kind of resembled miniature paintings that you would see in, um, in manuscripts. And then in terms of their themes and in terms of their um, 
the way they, they um, create their figures, especially when it comes to their sculptures, there is a lot of references to Sumerian sculptures. And we see that a lot in artists that come later as well. So talking about the art of this period, I'm actually quite interested as well in the art that came before. And I wonder how did this generation differentiate from the previous artists in the region? Uh, say, for example, before the 40s, or even if we go back to the Ottoman time period, um, how was this transition effectively made? So, I mean, there was a huge difference between the, the generations. The previous generation were generally what we would refer to more as academic artists. They were usually trained in traditional painting skills, techniques, um, while they were part of the Ottoman army. Um, they were educated in military academies in Istanbul, exposed to a lot of Western art and had European teachers and therefore had more of a traditional European style of painting, you know, scenic landscapes, um, traditional portraits, still lifes, that kind of thing. And this included really amazing, talented artists. Then there were groups like the Art Friends Society in the 1940s and later the Pioneers, which were both important moments in Iraqi art history and kind of formed that very gradual meeting point between traditional art and modernism. People were starting to experiment on a, on a smaller scale. They were looking for inspiration in Iraq's um, natural habitats. Art is both a hobby and a career was gaining more traction. The Department of Painting at Baghdad's Fine Arts Institute was founded by Fayek Hassan, who led the Pioneers Group as well. Scholarships abroad were beginning. It was exciting, but the real contrast with those original academic painters is, of course, with the artists of the 1950s onwards. And I think that contrast is especially visible when directly comparing Mohammed Haji Salim, who I mentioned, with his son Jawad. And when you want to look at how 20th century Iraqi art shifted, that's a really beautiful contrast to illustrate it. They were completely different in their styles, both father and son. And, um, and what inspired them was completely different as well. The new generation were, of course, really influenced in some ways um, by European modern art. Jawad in particular was very much inspired by Henry Moore, amongst others. And they were also inspired by European artists who had come to Baghdad as well. But that wasn't at the core of their practice. It was an addition which mixed in nicely um, with the core being the search for their heritage and this desire to formulate a new national identity. Um, the artists after this period, the early to mid 1950s, that's an even bigger contrast. They really continued with what Jawad Salim um, and Shakar Hassan and others established. So artists from the 60s, uh, like Dia Al-Azawi, Ismail Fattah, Ali Talib, Kazim Haidar, Mahmoud Sabri, Rafael Nasri. I mean, the list goes on. There's so many of them. Um, they just became more and more bold and experimental. And it felt natural to them to incorporate this artistic language and that Salim and others had instilled into Iraqi art, like features of Mesopotamian visual culture, for example. Yeah, and I think we have got to one of the most important and interesting parts of our conversation. And it's why do you think there was such an interest to revitalize these old ideas from Mesopotamia and reclaim that new layer of perhaps nationalism? Why was ancient Mesopotamia precisely used as a vehicle to communicate uh, these new ideas via the old visuals? I think ancient Mesopotamia was chosen to an extent because um, 
it was in, in searching for this, um, this Iraqi artistic language um, and looking to the past, they wanted to go back to a, a point which was, which was part of their rich heritage and something which defined them. And, you know, there, it was this, this great period for them, um, kind of uh, on par with so many other ancient uh, civilizations across the world. You know, people don't really necessarily even know much about ancient Mesopotamia. Um, and so this was something that even a lot of Iraqis hadn't studied, but they were vaguely aware of. Um, and, and, you know, the Iraq museum existed. Um, and so they could see these, um, these artifacts, they could see this history in front of them, but it didn't form a part of their current artistic language. And so they wanted to look back and, and explore it and learn from it and take aspects of it and incorporate it into their work. Now, I don't know if I would necessarily call what they were doing nationalism, uh, you know, or anything to do with nationalism as such. I'd say it's more patriotism or national historic pride, perhaps, um, because obviously nationalism as a word kind of suggests this like inherent political intention um, rather than kind of seeking a cultural identity and uh and you know being proud of it and celebrating it and that kind of thing um so because you know in iraq whether it was the ottomans or then the british or whoever else tried to control the country they had been ruled over and their visible cultural roots that they had or that they felt i guess they had been diluted or sidelined for so many years and so this desire to incorporate those aspects of mesopotamian or or islamic heritage it, it was their way of exploring their extremely rich past and allowing it to inspire them and repurposing it um, to create their particular form of art. Um, and um, Iraqi art really does stand out in the Arab world as being very inherently Iraqi. Whereas maybe aside from Palestinian art because of how rooted that often is in Palestinian culture specifically, and maybe also Egypt, um, much of the rest of the region can often blend and blur, um, not always, of course, I, I know I'm generalizing, but Iraqi art really worked to find its own culture and become its own thing. And we see a real culmination of, of that and all of the themes that these artists in the 50s had been working with. Um, we see a culmination of those goals in Jawad Salim's final work before his sudden death in 1961, the Nasb al-Hurriya, the Freedom Monument in Baghdad. This huge monument that he did in collaboration with architect Rifat Chaudhary, which was commissioned by the new prime minister at the time, um, Abdul Karim Qasim. So Abdul Karim Qasim came into power in 1958. Uh, previously, there was a monarchy which was British backed. And um, Qasim launched a coup. It was a very bloody coup. The royal family was massacred. It was, there were riots in the streets. It was, it was a very, very big moment and it ended the rule of the monarchy. And so after this, Qasim wanted this monument as a tribute to the success of the coup and saw it essentially as a bit of propaganda. Um, he even wanted his face to feature in it somehow, but Jawad resisted. He was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm doing what I want. So it has this extensive symbolism, which he had been incorporating into his work for many, many years, but on a huge scale this time, on what was essentially like a billboard made of concrete in the center of Baghdad. There were so many different local elements combined. The Mesopotamian influences featured heavily, of course, with inspiration taken from 
design references from monumental gates and palaces, and you can see it in how the figures are depicted. But there was also inspiration from Abbasid wall reliefs, themes and motifs from Iraq's rural communities, and also the fact that it's meant to be read right to left, like the Arabic language. It's a very succinct and symbolic culmination of that desire to form a new artistic identity. You talk about national pride more than nationalism because it was used for propagandistic objectives. But I wonder if the art of this period was never politicized? Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say this immediate period were, included particularly politicized works. Um, there were artworks which referenced political events. Um, Shakar Hassan, for example, he did some works which were, I think, related to the 1958 coup, um, things like that. Um, but they they weren't works that were that I think you could define as propaganda. You know, they weren't necessarily showing any particular political belief or anything like that, um, which is something that you, you you get this more in Egypt, for example, during that time, you know, um, or, or earlier actually, um, where the politics really informs the artistic shifts um, during that time. But you start to get more political work in, in Iraq, very direct political work. Um, that again, I wouldn't necessarily describe as nationalism in any way. It's just that the work becomes more politicized because of events, you know, there, there's so much going on during that period. Um, and yeah, you start to get that in the 60s, especially the late 60s, um, in Iraq. There's new vision group set up by Diyal Azawi and other prominent artists. They had been really impacted by the Arab-Israeli war. So their work became increasingly more revolutionary and politicized. Um, what, was, what was happening here in Iraq um, could be equated as a phenomenon that also was being seen in Iran, Egypt or Lebanon at the time? So, I mean, there are some parallels with Egypt. Um, many of the mid 20th century Egyptian art movements were deeply inspired by local folk art and symbolism like in Iraq. Um, and then also with this desire to look back to Mesopotamia, it equates in some ways with the neo-pharaonic style that you get in, um, in Egyptian art, you know, reviving classical Egyptian art um, in the early 20th century with sculptors like Mahmoud Mukhtar, for example. But this happened far earlier than it did in Iraq, um, about two, two or three decades earlier. Um, and they had, Egypt had been relatively independent from the Ottoman Empire since, I think since about the, the, the 1860s. And then you get the Waft Party movement happening. And I think it was after the First World War, I think about 1919, and then their resistance to the British. So the Egyptian movement was very much political. You know, it was informed by those events at that, at that time. And you see that reflected in the art of that period. And then of course, with Nasserism in the 50s and the 60s in Egypt, you get this renewed national pride and regional pride with Pan-Arabism. But that really was very, again, very much political. Um, although you do get artworks relating to political moments, like I said, in Iraq, um, occasionally in the 50s, but much more so in the 1960s, later in the 1960s. Iran, um, I wish I knew more about modern Iranian art history, but I do know that they had the Sakakhane movement, which also, I suppose, has some parallels in the sense that it's It's a neo-traditional movement. It's a way for artists to explore specific religious intricacies of Iranian culture. 
but it is predominantly rooted in those expressions of faith, specifically Shiism in Iran, which is something that I wouldn't draw direct links with necessarily when it comes to the same period of Iraqi art. Although Iraqi art does have its own ex explorations of religious and often Shia historical symbolism, but it was generally intended to be more symbolic, rooted in folk motifs and heroism rather than direct expressions of faith per se. Um, also, this movement in Iran had a really big focus on calligraphy, which was important in Iraq too, but didn't happen as a movement as such until a bit later. So these artists formed part of the Republic after the monarchy was overthrown. And then we get to a number of wars and Saddam takes over in the 79. And I wonder how did the artistic scene of Iraq evolve with this uh, change? Yes. Yeah, so, um... Saddam, as you said, came into power in 1979, um, but he was involved in higher levels of government in the, in the years leading up to that. So the Ba'ath Party, which was the party that he was, the political party that he was a part of, had existed for many years already, and he had kind of risen through the ranks um, within it um, until he came into power in 1979. And he was very much an authoritarian figure, a dictator, um, right from day one. Um, and the artistic scene as a result evolved in so many ways um, with, with his rise to power. Firstly, just on a basic level, he drained the country of so many of its artists, not necessarily always directly, but the environment of fear and censorship and the requirement to work according to the president's whims, it was enough to drive many of Iraq's artists out of, out of the country, not to mention persecution for whatever reason. I mean, there were so many reasons to leave if it was an option. And for those who stayed, artists would often have to paint works which can only be described as propaganda. Magazines they edited or designed were just full of pro-Saddam images and rhetoric. He commissioned really prominent and talented sculptors and artists to create monuments which were essentially tributes to himself and what he perceived as his successes. Um, and they're beautiful and technically excellent in so many ways, but they're propaganda. Um, but how as an artist do you say no in that environment? It's very, very difficult. And he even renamed the National Museum of Modern Art in Baghdad to the Saddam Art Center. It was, it was all an ego trip. Um, but artists were very, very smart. They were suffering, but they were very smart. They learned how to subvert government surveillance using coded symbols, which is really interesting. And you start noticing it more and more once you know what they're doing, although you have no idea what they're trying to say. Um, then also during the sanctions of the 1990s, as a result of Saddam and the Gulf War and everything he did in Kuwait during that time, the most basic supplies were hard to find. It was a humanitarian disaster, but also art supplies were really scarce and it was really difficult to sell work if you could even make it at all. So you couldn't make a living. As a result, artists, um, often encouraged by the Al-Azawi, who was and still is in London, made these notebook-like artworks called Defatir, they were basically various formats of artist books as a way to express themselves in the situation that they were in. And they would carefully send those books outside of the country to sell, which was a really smart way of getting through the sanctions. Um, and finally, going back to this theme of reclaiming Mesopotamian heritage and national identity, Saddam did this himself in his own way, which can be seen in murals that he had painted in palaces, um, in, in his architectural style. Um, he essentially took what artists of previous generations, historians and archaeologists had achieved and used the imagery and this notion of ancient success for propaganda purposes in a very 
kitsch and ostentatious and flamboyant way. This was Saddam's make Iraq great again kind of period. He had this aesthetic, you know, there's a mural of him, for example, in an army uniform facing a Babylonian king as if they're equals um, or friends or something like that, looking over Babylon. The whole thing is just ridiculous. It's just propaganda. So fascinating because I think around the same year is when the Shah of Iran was conducting this parade which was all about showcasing power and continuity. And then, and that's exactly the same. It's such an interesting year because that's when the Islamic revolution in Iran happens as well. There's, there's so many shifts happening. And so, of course, artists are going to respond to it. So we move into a period in which Iraq has received a lot of bad press. Nonetheless, a lot of artists have been able to uh, lift the, the country and go abroad, generating a diaspora. So how is this artistic scene and what exciting outcomes do you believe came out from it? Yeah, of course. Um, so I think that there are obviously always a lot of similarities and comparisons with other Arab countries or just, you know, countries in the region, not necessarily Arab, um, and what their diasporas have done or how they've existed in their own countries. Like Lebanon as an example, um, or Syria as an example. Um, Iraq really, especially from the 90s, well, Definitely from 2003, um, from the war, from the from the U.S. occupation, like Iraq was paralyzed. Um, you know, the National Museum and then the Modern Art Museum, they were looted. A lot of artworks disappeared. So the situation for artists in the country and then in the diaspora is very, you know, it, it, it can vary in, in, in different ways. And Iraqis didn't really leave Iraq in huge numbers until the 70s, 80s, 90s onwards. Whereas, um, again, the Lebanese, for example, they had created diaspora communities abroad from the early 20th century. Um, and so they had these communities to rely on abroad, whether it was in South America or Africa or, you know, um, in, the, in the East Coast of the US. Um, they had really established themselves elsewhere. Iraqis were kind of starting from, from scratch when they left, when Saddam came into power. And so it was very difficult to position themselves as artists. And some people succeeded, um, like the Al Azawi, for example, he came to London in 76 and he's been here ever since and he's still making incredibly beautiful and exciting work. Um, and the artists who are beginning their careers in the 80s and the 90s, whether they left Iraq then or stayed, um, there are so many interesting artists from that time who are still making work or still exhibiting. Artists like Mahmoud al-Ubaidi, Sadiq al-Faraji, Sawan Baran, other artists in the diaspora like Haif Kahraman and um, Michael Rakowitz. Uh, and the good thing is there's a demand in the art market for Iraqi art. People are interested. And what was once a very niche section of art history is becoming more widespread. More and more people are interested in Iraqi art history, which is fantastic. So that encourages artists to create more work and to exhibit their work because there's more of an audience for it. Um, and there are so many new and young, exciting um, artists too, but they're lacking support. It's not easy now in Iraq. Um, it's of course easier in the diaspora in a lot of ways. And having spoken to young artists recently based in Baghdad, they, they spoke a lot about how tough it is to be in any kind of creative field in the country. There's no funding, there's no systems in place, no support, no job opportunities. And they've all had to live their whole lives through war, occupation, instability, terrorism, corruption, now COVID. Um, it's tough to make a career in that environment um, or to even go through the training process. You know, if you even get to go to 
the the art schools and things like that but they're very talented and they're persevering um one thing i'm very excited about personally is the photography scene in iraq um especially the younger photographers um a lot of them went viral during the protest movement which happened in 2019 in in iraq um in late 20 sorry in october specifically onwards um which was great and I wrote an article about a bunch of them recently, actually, and I was so excited to talk about them and hear about their experiences. And wow, they're so incredibly talented. Like I really urge people to pay attention to them and to the artists as they come out, both old and new, um, and just generally to the very rich artistic history that Iraq has to offer. Thank you so much, Marisa, because it has been very insightful to learn about the nation uh, almost in a diachronical analysis. Um, it has been wonderful to hear that you, there is a future. And I wonder also, what would you like to see developing in Iraq in the upcoming years? I think um, something which they really lack, um, and I say this as someone in the diaspora, I haven't been back since I was two, so I can't even say a lot of this from a first-hand perspective because I haven't seen the situation with my own eyes, um, but having spoken to people there and spoken to people who've lived there for many years, um, you know, they lack they lack supporting institutions. You know, when when you're becoming an artist here in the UK, for example, um, you know, you can go to art school, and from art school, there's kind of like a route that you can kind of go down. It's it's still tough, of course, it's still very tough to make it as an artist, um, but. There are galleries, there are museums, there are people who will support you and fund you and, you know, mentor you in certain ways. That's very much lacking in Iraq because um, the government and, you know, the government especially has been very much distracted, whether intentionally or unintentionally, by, you know, wars and ISIS and God knows what, so many different things. You know, there's so much corruption, of course, as well. Um, that their priority is never let's fund the arts, you know? Um, it just, it's been such a long time since that's had that injection. Um, and that kind of arts culture has, has been lost, unfortunately, over the years. It still very much exists in places like Lebanon, for example, and Egypt as well. Um, they still have those institutions in place, which, and they're still very passionate about, you know, promoting the arts and exhibiting and showing what they have. And Iraq just doesn't have those places anymore. Um, places do exist, but they're not on the scale that they used to be. And so they really need that. They, re they need the infrastructure. They need the support of the international community of their own people, the diaspora. Um, and more than anything, they need stability and they need the space to, to flourish without being bombarded by all the things that they've been bombarded with from abroad and by their own government. So, yeah. Thank you, Marisa. And I hope that in the next years we can see you becoming uh, the dynamo that the nation needs. So thank you so much for being here with us, sharing your knowledge, sharing your time. And I look forward to seeing you in London, hopefully sometime soon. Thank you so much, Juan.